It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 51 for Monday, August 27, 2007. Earth. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Kay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Fraser. How's it going? Good. I'm actually a little tired. We're uh, down in Seattle attending the, the Penny Arcade Expo, and... Uh, so actually, this is where I'm recording right now, and a little, uh, little sleepy. But you're having a whole lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been it's it's a great convention, and I've uh, got a chance to meet uh, meet Will Wheaton. So if he's listening, I will. All right. So um, and actually, next week you're going to be at DragonCon. I'm going to DragonCon, and hey, Will, if you're there, I'd love to meet you too. <laughs> but for all the other, uh, for all of our listeners, anyone who's interested, Pamela is going to be at DragonCon for next week, and I will put the we'll put links in, in the show notes. So she's gonna, we're going to be doing a live episode of Astronomy Cast. I won't be there, but Pam will be there, and we'll have a special guest to do the episode with her. So if you're going to be in the neighborhood, if you're going to be attending the conference, come by the podcast area and meet Pamela. Okay, so let's continue on then. So another week, another planet. Last week we covered Venus, so that means it's our home planet's turn. Let's talk about Earth. All right, Pamela, talk about Earth. Well, Earth is perhaps one of the geologically most interesting planets in our solar system. Uh, There's a few moons that are out there contending for being most interesting geological object in general. But as far as the planets go, Earth has the most going on. We have plate tectonics. We have an active magnetic field. We're not 100% stable in our orbit, so all the little irregularities that cause twisting and turning cause our atmosphere and our weather patterns to constantly be evolving, and we have cycle within cycle within cycle of change constantly going on. And we have life. And fortunately, we live on the Earth, so we're good proximity to be able to study it. All right, so let's start then with the formation. Once again, you want to tell the story of our, of our planet's start? Well, our planet, like pretty much all the other planets in the solar system, started out as a whole bunch of dust grains orbiting the sun while the sun was in the process of forming. And these dust grains collided and merged and merged until we eventually got a nice big blob of stuff. And that blob of stuff was hanging out, doing its best job to cool and solidify, cool and solidify and form a planet. When along came something Mars-ish in size and knocked the tar out of it. And in the process, a lot of the light stuff that had been on the surface of that forming blob of planet Earth got knocked into outer space. And it re-solidified to form the moon. And the heavy stuff got left behind to stay the planet Earth. Yeah, and we actually did a whole episode on the formation of the moon. So although Pamela just went right past that really quickly, you can hear the whole story. And we'll link to that from the show notes. Okay, so we've got the the Earth as a blob and the moon as another blob of, of lighter elements. What next? So these blobs, they were really hot. They started off just not the type of place where you find liquid water. And the moon stayed someplace where we still don't have liquid water on the surface of the moon. It, 
The moon's too small to have an atmosphere, so any liquid that's on its surface just instantly goes straight to vapor and escapes. But there's some ice on the moon, and that ice doesn't actually come from the stuff the moon formed out of. It comes from comets hitting the moon. And on Earth, all the water on the planet Earth, we think, also comes from comets hitting the planet. So we start off with hot lava blob that is mostly heavy stuff. As it cools, we enter a solar system period called the Great Bombardment. Planet gets totally blasted with comets. Comets hit the planet, melt, they create the oceans. The continents basically rose out of the oceans. We had all sorts of volcanoes. They burbled stuff to the surface. And because we have so much liquid... Our planet's plates, places where large amounts of crustal material came to the surface, are able to slide around. The water actually works as a lubricant to help plate tectonics. And plate tectonics are a good thing. Our planet is still working on cooling off from its original formation. Part of that cooling off means heat has to escape. It's like when you have a pot of boiling spaghetti noodles with a lid on it. The lid will rattle and move around as blobs of steam try and come out the surface. Now, if you locked that lid on, if you made your pot into a pressure cooker, it could actually explode from the pressure built up inside. And that's kind of what Venus does when it resurfaces its entire surface in one foul volcanism swoop. Here on Earth... We have constant slow escape of the heat from inside the planet. And some of that heat isn't just coming from the planet still cooling off. It's actually being generated from nuclear materials inside our planet decaying. Our planet's actually a wee bit radioactive. And any of you who live near granite quarries know that because you have radon building up in your basement from the decay of radioactive materials in granite. That constant decay is also heating our planet, also escaping through the surface. The places where a lot of this heat is escaping, this forms the Pacific Ring of Fire, where we have volcanoes in Hawaii, we have the Indonesian islands that get unfortunately hit with earthquakes on a regular basis as the planet shifts and moves. We have one crustal layer plunging underneath another one near Peru, which recently caused a large earthquake. We have parts of Ethiopia actually tearing themselves apart as our planet is constantly rearranging its surface. Now, has this process like is the plate tectonics that we know today is this what's been happening across the earth for a long time or are we in a, in a less active phase than than what used to be and and what does the future hold how how will things play out over over time well as our planet cools the plate tectonics is getting slower and slower there's less heat that needs to escape so there's less pressure building up underneath the surface moving everything around other things are less dramatic than they used to be at different points in the Earth's geologic history, all the crust has been lumped up in one place. And this actually causes the mass distribution of the Earth to be slightly different. You've got all the planet's water on one side, all the planet's Earth on the other side. And this can actually cause our planet to change how it's oriented relative to its north and south rotational poles. So the north and south pole will stay roughly in the same alignment relative to the sun. But the planet relative to that axis can actually pivot dramatically so that the big mass parts are along the equator and the low mass parts are near the poles. This is a more stable way for it to rotate. How much, how much in the past has it changed? 
It's hard to go back and figure out exactly how much it's changed, but we know that there's been some dramatic alignments, the type of alignments that if they occurred today would take Alaska and put them on the equator. These rearrangements we document in the magnetic rock. As rock comes up through lava vents, as lava basically comes to the surface and it has things that can hold on to magnetic fields within it, as that material cools, the magnetic bits in the rock will align themselves relative to the Earth's magnetic field. And the magnetic field, its orientation is based somewhat on the rotation of the planet. What's happening here is we have, with the planet Earth, solid core, it sits there. Around that solid core is molten iron. And as that molten iron rotates, it has charged particles within it. And those rotating charges create a magnetic field. And as long as that rotation is going in roughly the same direction, the magnetic field stays roughly oriented the same. It tends to slush and move around a bit, but... While its poles may switch, it generally stays oriented roughly along the rotation of the planet. So north and south may switch, but the poles, direction of the poles stays roughly related to how the planet is rotating. You don't end up with north coming out through equatorial Africa in general. But there are processes that do change the direction of the poles. There are processes that change the direction of the poles. Those processes generally keep the poles and the rotation axis of the planet roughly aligned with one another. 90-degree angles don't generally happen. But when we're going through the sedimentary rock, we occasionally find these places where the rock is just oriented wrong. And we think that this is related to the planet actually slushing. This is called true polar wander. This happens when you end up with the planet's water and crust oriented in strange ways and the planet has to realign itself so that its mass is distributed in a way that allows it to rotate stably. It's a really weird phenomenon. Can we talk a bit about periods of heating and cooling? Because I know part of it's uh, the polar tilt has a, has a role to play in that as well. In addition to this really weird true polar wander that is a very rare and non-periodic occurrence, we do have these constant periodic changes going on. This is called the Milankovitch cycles. The Milankovitch cycles are a bunch of different cycles layered on top of one another, and they, they cause these long-term periodicities in our climate. You have effects due to precession. This is how the Earth's north and south poles stay at the same angle relative to our orbit around the sun, but where that angle is pointed changes. So our North Star doesn't always stay our North Star. Sometimes you actually end up with a Southern Polar Star, which we don't currently have. Depending on how our poles are aligned, you end up with different extremes in the seasons. Currently, during the northern hemisphere winter, we are actually closest to the sun. So when the north pole is pointed toward the sun, the planet is also closest to the sun. When we're closest to the sun, we get about 6.8% more light than we do when we're furthest from the sun. Because of this, the northern winters aren't as extreme as the southern winters. Now, we can also at different points in the Earth's precession, have the South Pole pointed at the sun when we're closest to the sun. We can end up with the poles not pointed at the sun, just at 
a right angle when we're closest to the sun. And all of this affects the extremes of the seasons. We also have effects that are caused by the eccentricity of the orbit. Jupiter, Saturn, all the other planets are constantly pulling on the planet Earth. And this causes the actual shape of our Earth to gradually change. Sometimes the Earth is going to be further from the sun. Sometimes the Earth is going to be nearer to the sun. And how much nearer and how much further changes over time. Currently, the difference between when we're closest and furthest to the sun is 6.8% more energy when we're closest. Well, sometimes we can get to the point that it's more than 20% more light when we're closest to the sun. This also affects the seasons, making the seasons more extreme. Our sun itself is slowly changing. All these different things are piling up on top of one another. Our axial tilt is also slowly changing. So while we're more or less about 24 degrees, our axial tilt wanders from about 21.5 to 24.5 degrees. We're currently 23.44 degrees. All these different things pile up on top of one another to affect the seasons. This actually shows up in long-term understanding of climate where we take ice cores from glacial areas and we study how has the planet's temperature varied over hundreds of thousands of years. Although we're going to throw all that data into uh, chaos this century with our human-made global warming, but that's completely different. (laughs) True. Um, Unfortunately, as we look at all these cycles, we do see long-term cooling and heating trends and we are in what's supposed to be a normal heating trend except we sort of shot off what is normally predicted it's kind of like if you're used to coasting your car down a hill and you know if you're going at 40 miles per hour at the top of the hill and as you start going down the hill you just throw it into neutral and let it go you'll be going 50 or 60 at the bottom of the hill well imagine trying that experiment one day and all of a sudden you're going 300 miles per hour when you hit the bottom of the hill. That's just not normal. And uh, currently we're in one of these. The car is really accelerating far more than it should be uh, heating phases. And we're trying to fully uncouple all the different effects on our atmosphere. All right. So we've talked about the the ground itself. Let's talk a bit about the weather. So what is the, the processes that get our weather whipping up? Well, our weather comes from a lot of different things. It comes from the fact that as our planet rotates, different sides of the planet are differently heated. And anytime you have one side cold, one side hot, you're going to end up with air flows. We also have one side of the planet pointed more to the sun than the other. So you end up with day in one hemisphere is warmer than day in the other hemisphere. And this ends up with different air flows. And then the planet's just rotating relative to the atmosphere. So all these different rotations cause the atmosphere, which is basically a fluid, to end up convecting. We also have oceans that hold on to the heat and transfer it themselves. There's these mid-ocean conveyor belts that are driven by both changes in salinity and changes in temperature in different parts of the ocean. So you end up with cold air in the northern hemispheres 
oceans, sinking down to the bottom, flowing down towards the equatorial regions where they heat up, rise to the surface, and then this warm water goes across the surface of the oceans back up to the northern extreme. So you have this constant conveyor belt of hot and cold water. As the cold water comes down to the mid-latitudes, it cools off the oceans, and this helps temper our hurricanes. The warmer the water is, the more powerful the hurricanes can become. And then we also have this warm water going north, and the warm water actually helps warm the air, allowing moderate climates to occur in nations like England. Now, if this conveyor belt shuts off, which it can do if you dump too much fresh water into the northern oceans, then you end up with extremes. You end up with the equatorial oceans getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and that heat isn't getting conveyed up to areas around Europe and Japan. And so those climates start to get a lot colder, and you can end up with much more extreme conditions here on the planet Earth. Now, we talk about with all of the planets that we've gone through so far, and, and I'm sure when we get to Mars, we'll talk about this as well, and it's about the search for life. Well, I think we found life here. I'm pretty sure. I, I think so. Not always <laughs> okay. sure. So how, how do people think that got started? Well, our planet's about 4.6 billion years old, and... We think that roughly 4 billion years ago, small, single-celled organisms started to pop out on our planet. From these single cells, over time, things slowly got more and more complicated. We're still trying to sort out all the different states. How did this evolution take place? It's not something that we can resurrect in a lab. It's not something that we can repeat and try over. But as near as we can tell, about 4 billion years ago, single-celled organisms began to exist. Originally, there were probably things called methanogens that didn't work the way life that we're used to worked. They didn't require oxygen. In fact, oxygen killed them. And they produced methane that probably helped warm our planet. Methane is a greenhouse gas. This is why we're currently so concerned about things like moose in the Scandinavian nations that are giving off methane through processes best not talked about in an astronomy show. So these methanogens gave off methane, helped keep the planet warm. And then at some point, they evolved. And we ended up with new types of cells that instead used and produced oxygen our atmosphere radically changed. We think about the same time, probably about 3 billion years ago, cells developed a way to use photosynthesis to better utilize energy from the sun. They used this photosynthesis to trap carbon and release oxygen into the atmosphere. This killed off all the methanogens and started creating an atmosphere that would be conducive to the type of life that exists now. I think it's, it's amazing that... The oxygen that we need to breathe today started out as a harmful byproduct of, of that class of bacteria. <laughs> it was a toxin. You know, sometimes what is bad for one thing is really good for another thing. We've all had our own evil thoughts at different points. If only bad thing food would happen, then it would be really good for us. Well, in the case of life, uh, the processes that killed off all the happily existing methanogens opened the door for different forms of bacteria and eukaryotic cells that were able to build up into the animal, plants, and fungal cells that we have in all of our modern life forms. And the, the bacteria has spread 
to every corner of the earth. I mean, not to mention us here up on the surface, but there's lots and lots of life just underground, bottom of the oceans. It's everywhere. It's it's everywhere. And some of the cool things that we're discovering is just the ways that life has figured out to protect itself under hostile conditions. If you wander through the desert after a rainstorm, every little puddle you find is going to be teeming with life. Now, when those puddles dry up, where does that life go? Well, it turns out that life stays right there, but it's able to encapsulate itself, to protect itself, to basically find ways to completely shut down and go dormant, in some cases for hundreds of years, just waiting for the next puddle to form that it can live in and thrive in and reproduce in. So no matter how hostile our planet gets, different forms of life find ways to survive within that hostility. I think these discoveries in the last few decades have have made me feel a lot better about global catastrophes or even like human-made catastrophes. Like when, you know, if a big, not if, but when another big asteroid hits the <laughs> earth and causes a mega extinction event, uh, there are whole ecosystems that are completely disconnected from the sun. And, you know, if, the, if it's cloudy for 100 years, they don't care. <laughs> and, and I think that, that that's qu- actually quite amazing uh, that, that w- before we thought everything was so fragile, but in fact the earth is quite uh, durable and life and has, has hit every niche and has many places that, are, that don't rely on the sun for, for energy. So we're less have to be worried necessarily that life on earth is going to survive and more just about ourselves. Yeah, multicellular life, which has only been around basically for the past billion years, it is fairly fragile. We die fairly easily. Uh, everyone has witnessed the death of a earthworm on a sunny day. We're fragile. The bacteria are here to stay. The microorganisms are here to stay. It's the bigger things. Animals, as we know them, have only been around for 600 million years. And things as simple as a fish have only been around for 500 million years. Insects started 400 million years ago on our 4.6 billion-year-old planet. And mammals are only 200 million years old. And humans are only 2 million years old. We're fragile. It took a long time to get to us. But microbes, I have faith that microbes are just as long as there's a planet Earth, there's going to be some single-celled organism living on it. And so what does the future hold for our planet? Well, things are going to... It depends on global warming. I mean, we live in an interesting time where the future of our planet is being defined today. But setting global warming aside, assuming that our atmosphere is able to return to the normal cycles of the Milankovitch cycle that it had gone through for the past billions of years, our planet should be okay for another 50 million years or so. We're actually in the twilight of our planet. In the next tens of millions of years, our sun is slowly going to warm. And as it slowly warms, it's going to slowly warm our planet. And eventually it's going to reach the point that our oceans start to boil and evaporate. And when this happens, we're going to have two different problems. 
the first problem is, well, it's too hot for life like us to exist. And once the oceans start evaporating, that water in the atmosphere is going to increase the heating of the planet. Water vapor is just another greenhouse gas. Once our planet starts baking, the water is going to bake out of the earth itself. And we're going to have a problem a lot like Venus, where the plate tectonics no longer has a lubricant to allow the plates to gradually shift. And so the heat starts building up inside the planet as well, where you can start getting catastrophic volcanism going on. All in all, life is not going to be happy in about 50 million years. Sun's going to stay at a safe distance for another 5 billion years or so. But in about 5 billion years, our sun itself is going to start going through changes in how it generates energy. And this is going to affect the radius of the sun. It could come out and get dangerously close and blast the planet Earth with amounts of radiation that are just going to zot away whatever is left of our atmosphere. Just so much radiation, so much light from the sun is going to blast our planet that our atmosphere is going to be toast. It's not a good future, but we've had a good 4.6 billion year run. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I, and I think then, from what I understand, we're just far enough away that we probably won't actually be consumed by the sun. So then the earth will just rotate the... Uh, the burned out white dwarf for hundreds of billions of years. Exactly. Our, our planet isn't likely to get destroyed, at least through any of the processes we currently understand. It's just life that's going to get destroyed. But I wonder, though, if, you know, if, the, if our planet's going to continue to cool down, it'll still be a source of heat. So all of the underground microbes will probably still be perfectly happy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's funny. All right. Well, that was great. I think uh, so now we've covered the Earth. So next week we'll proceed with the with the planetary excursion and we'll do Mars, which I think is going to be a monster show because there's a lot to talk about there. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you later, Fraser. All right. Bye bye. Listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. <laughs>